Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. Today, we're with Dr. Sabod Adhikari and Mr. Frank Wolf of Lester Wolf Farms outside of Uniontown, Washington. And we are looking forward to talking more about their on-farm trials as a research collaboration in answering questions important to innovation in the region's cropping system. We're going to talk more about the PNW Cover Crops Project and how that research collaboration is looking. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Excellent. Um, Frank, would you please tell us a bit more about yourself, who you farm with, and more about your farm and farming conditions? My name is Frank Wolf. We farm in uh, southeast Washington State, uh, this is south of Pullman. Um, I'm fourth generation on our farm. I farm with my brother, Ben. Um, we annual crop 100% of our cropping system, um, and we're integrating cover crops without through that cropping system as well. Uh, crops that we grow are winter wheat, spring wheat, spring barley, garbanzo beans, peas, and canola. Uh, the rotation is determined on kind of profitability levels. Uh, our rainfall uh, is anywhere from 16 to 22 inch rainfall. Uh, our furthest south farm is right on the breaks of the Lewiston uh, Canyon, and our most northern stuff is about five miles seven miles south of Pullman. Okay, that's a good spread along this. Um, so you farm some pretty big hills. Can you talk a little bit more about your soil? So the soils are extremely deep around here, but they have aspects of uh, heavy clay on the ridges, uh, clay knobs, uh, very deep loam soils in the draws. Um, causes some issues with chemistries that we have to, to deal with on carryovers, uh, rotations, weeds that we deal with. Uh, as, long, as well as the North Hill sides are colder. Thanks so much for sharing all of that, um, Dr. Adhikari. Would you share a bit more about yourself and your position at University of Idaho, how you got involved in the PNW Cover Crops Project, because I believe you were one of the key people that initiated that, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, your research interests in general. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Subod Adhikari, Research Assistant Professor at uh, University of Idaho. Uh, it's been almost six years I have been working at University of Idaho um, uh, before as a postdoc, but right now as a faculty there. My primary research is um, to uh, work on or develop some diversified uh, climate change resilient uh, cropping system and how those um, diversified or climate change resilient diversified systems uh, can impact uh, pest regulation, insect pest regulation, uh, weed suppression, as well as uh, benefit, supporting beneficial insects such as uh, pollinators. And that's what I, I work on. Great. Well, also looking forward to hearing more about some of the, the pollinators mm-hmm. in the cover crops with, with this work. Um, great. So you guys have been collaborating on some on-farm trials. Would you give a bit of an overview on what you've been working with? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, uh, back in 2019, uh, I was um, 
looking for some early adapters, uh, adapting or trying cover crop uh, in the region uh, to uh, collect some insect, insect paste and pollinators. And I found Frank, um, one of them. Uh, so I visited his farm, started to collect data 2019, 2020. Since then, we have been collaborating in different farms. And recently, uh, starting this 2023, um, we have this new project, uh, Western Share funded um, project on cover cropping um, in order to uh, develop a decision support tool um, based on our own data as well as uh, some other work in the region. Um, so for this one, um, we um, initiated uh, talking to uh, eight different farmers in, in the region from Washington and Idaho. And then um, we had some questions to start with, but we started to discuss and then modify our research questions on cover cropping. Uh, we came up with uh, some cover crop mixes we wanted to try. And successfully, we completed our first year uh, of um, cover crop trials on these eight farms in the region. So 2023 is this first year of data collection around the, this partnership mm -hmm. um, toward developing a decision support aid yes. around this, cover crops. Mm -hmm, yes, this particular uh, project is yes. Uh, like I mentioned, 2019, 2020, there was a different project uh, on farm. Um, those were all managed uh, by uh, farmers already, the early adapters like Frank. Uh, and then the management and everything were under discretions. We just use their farm to see, uh, you know, whatever we can find in cover crop as well as some business as usual, such as um, uh, wheat or other crops. Um, but this particular one, we started this project in um, to write the proposal, uh, develop the proposal and discuss around uh, back in 2021 uh, we got this grant in 2022 and then the first year we completed 2023 and it goes until 2025 it's like for three years uh, oh great well and it sounds like growers have been involved in this work throughout and have been um, helping to inform a lot of the processes along the way from kind of the one flavor of on-farm experimentation where you were like, hey, Frank, looks like you're growing cover crops. Can we come out and measure some stuff? And then um, I'd like to hear more about how you've engaged with the process along the way, Frank. So I was excited to have University of Idaho uh, take a look at what we were doing with cover crops because from 2013, we were experimenting with different types of cover cropping systems, whether it was intercropping, or uh, standalone cover crop, uh, eliminating a cash crop, cover crop, um, just various different aspects of it, trying to make it fit. But all the data that we were collecting was on-farm anecdotal, basically visual. Uh, and then we'd, we'd tweak it from there and we'd find quote unquote experts in the field and talk to what our experiences were, how would they change it. Uh, but there was no real uh, true data set that was built on the Palouse. Um, so when Sabode uh, was in contact with us, I was excited about just that aspect that we were able to have boots on the ground of real research to have uh, scientific data to, to track what we we're doing. And then we'll extrapolate information from that to move forward. And then with this uh, Western Sarah grant, uh, 
it put a lot of data set um, and protocols into place. That's been a, a, a fun progression to go through. And being able to extrapolate some of the information that we've been using from 2013 to 2023 now, uh, I feel like we've been able to move past some of the pitfalls to this project because we know what uh, species work, um, kind of been able to help guide that process. And so now we can move forward uh, collectively and uh, with true scientific data. That's a really exciting cooperative process, right? It sounds like, you know, this the early data informed how to really guide asking more specific research questions that then can be, um, you know, isolate a little bit more of the isolated variables so we can really home in on those important research questions, probably some sort of moisture use and impact on next year's crop and that sort of thing. When you were first when you were first starting to grow cover crops. I'd love to know what initiated that for you, what your motivation was. And then also you mentioned that you were using visual assessments before you got roped into the the research cooperation. Um, Can you talk a bit more about those? Sure, so uh, 1998 is when we started, we converted our farm from a conventional type tillage system um, to a true no-till. Uh, low one pass, low disturbance. Uh, so we went through that transition. Uh, we had a lot of learning curve to that aspect. Uh, one of the big hopes was though that we were going to start seeing less inputs in our synthetic fertilizer needs, but we actually never saw that transition happen. We had a lot of weed management issues, rotational issues. Um, once we kind of figured those out, the next step was how do we how do we get our soils to convert the carbon? that it's been storing into a uh, usable form of nutrients. Um, that kind of brought us to the cover crop. There was, back in the early teens, uh, there was a lot of cover crop information coming out of back east in the Midwest that cover crops were really starting to convert that the carbon nitrogen ratio. And so that's what got me interested in it. And uh, the first cover crops that we really dealt with were interseeding because they were showing that there was a lot of uh, uh, components to interseeding a radish, a tillage type radish, uh, daikon, uh, deep rooted radish for nutrient cycling um, into the winter wheat and they would see a four to eight bushel response. So it, the ROI on the cover crop seed or the radish seed paid for that. Uh, so we started to dabble with that on some pretty large acres. And again, anecdotally, we didn't see the response. Um, we had our checks, check fields um, in comparison to the fields that we did the interseeding with. Uh, we just, our growing conditions uh, had a tendency to winter kill the, or frost kill the radish before they actually had any uh, ability to, to establish that deep root. Yeah. So that was the start of it. And then, uh, as that progressed, we just wanted to keep going down that track of uh, developing a cover crop system within our annual cropping system um, to try to get that nutrient cycling benefit. And so we've had some successes and we've had some big failures and I think we're moving closer, moving that needle closer. How did you dial in your rate for the radish? So the rate that was established by the companies that um, we're selling the radish. Okay. And so it was a uh, two to four pound of the acre rate 
uh, if I remember correctly, it was a long time ago. Um, and I just mixed it in as we were filling the drills. We have a hopper on the back that I was able to mix the, the radish seed right there and it, it, it mixed with the wheat. And then it just went down at the same time as seeding. Okay. And the establishment was extremely easy. It was just, we were always bumping up against that frost deadline mid of mid-October. So you said you didn't see a benefit to the radish at that time and you've evolved since then. Um, did you see a penalty to it? No. Okay. No, we did have to get clarification from RMA that we were going to be allowed to have an interseeded cover crop. Mm -hmm. uh, they were fine with it as long as it was terminated. Um, so that was the only question if we could do it on large-scale acreage that we had. Uh, no detriment though. I mean, it, it, for the most part, it all winter killed. There was some hard-coated seeds that might uh, germinate after we applied in-crop chemistries, but they didn't cause any problems. You just see a, a rogue radish plant uh, growing out in the middle of the field. As an early adopter of cover crops in the region, um, how, how did you guys meet? Uh, yeah, again, um, uh, looks like uh, Frank was uh, trialing with cover crops since 2013. And actually at that time when I was a PhD student at Montana State University, I was also working on a project with cover cropping with some agronomists there. But uh, working together was again in, by back in 2019 uh, that we started to meet and then um, participate in different events. Um, so that was the first time and when I was looking for innovative uh, early adapters, I got Frank's contact from, I believe, uh, NRCS, uh, Stephen Johnson or maybe PCD, Police Conservation District, uh, Ryan Bolan, one of those people provided me contact and then um, I contacted him and then, hey, I'm always willing to work with you guys, We're willing to help and he was kind enough to support. For our work, I started to collect um, um, data from his field. And then uh, in 1920, and then in 2021, uh, we wanted to develop this proposal and we were looking for uh, grower co collaborators. Um, first thing is for this Western State project, uh, it's a minimum three years. Since I already had a really good contact uh, with, uh, with uh, farmers like uh, uh, Frank, yeah, I just started to contact and then, yeah, now we have eight growers, uh, uh, PIs uh, in the project. Yeah, in the PNW cover crop project, I really hear that growers are co-PIs. You guys are really helping drive the research questions. Can you can we talk a little bit more about the research question mm -hmm. and how that process has, has looked from both perspectives? Sure, yeah. Um, one of the research questions is... Um, how these different cover crop mixes uh, can impact on soil health, the different soil parameters, um, uh, as well as, uh, you know, soil moisture and all of that, and insect pest uh, suppression or supporting beneficial insects, weed suppression and all of that. That's the one of the key uh, questions, uh, uh, research question we have. But we wanted, uh, also wanted to see um, how uh, the different termination timing would impact on overall cover crop biomass, but mainly soil moisture. Because um, for annual cropping zone, uh, soil moisture may not be uh, as big of a problem compared to uh, annual transition uh, cropping zone. So we need to have a really right time uh, when we 
terminate cover crop so that the cover crop has enough biomass that we are looking for. Um, at the same time, it's not taking over any um, soil moisture because we need subsequent crop um, uh, to grow. Um, and we don't want to deplete that soil moisture level. So we need really a right, uh, right termination timing. And right now we are testing with three different termination uh, dates. And then uh, looking at how those three different termination date uh, impact on, again, those soil health, different soil parameters, soil moisture, uh, crop biomass, weed biomass, insect, and all of that across those uh, uh, different cover crop mixtures. When I say different cover crop mixtures, we have three different, what we can call treatments, three different cover crop mixes. One we call low um, diversity mix. We have only three uh, species there, uh, representing brassica, um, grasses, and then legumes. Three functional groups, but three species uh, from each group. We also have high uh, diversity mix, where we still have those same three functional groups, again, brassicas, uh, legumes, and grasses, but we have three species from each of those functional groups, so in total, nine species. So that's the high diversity mix we have. Seeding, that sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> Super easy. It was yeah. easy, right? Uh, but we have one really unique, uh, Frank uh, can talk about that, but uh, unique treatment. The third treatment level is what we call producer's choice mix. So whatever producers, our producer collaborators want to try on their, on their field, they can they can do we have so many different uh, mixes there we will be collecting data on those so we have those three different mixes but we also collect data from BAU that is business as usual in transition annual transition cropping zone it could be fallow but uh, in annual cropping it could be any crop or garbs or spring wheat or any other crops so to add to what Sabod was talking about as well is one of the intriguing things to me on this project as a PI is we're not just looking at eight farmers that are all doing business as usual the same. We've got people that are on the, the southern portion of the Palouse that have annual cropping systems. This study has producers from Genesee and here and up into St. John representing that annual crop transition yes. to follow. So. And then there are extremely dry conditions down in the uh, Sultan area. Oh, okay. Uh, it is. area. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, so we all have different cropping systems, different, uh, some major different soil types, rainfall. Uh, so being able to, there's going to be some commonalities that we're already seeing, and then there's some some differences that we're already seeing too. So that was that's fun to see that data set uh, kind of come to light. Um, some of it was kind of surprising data to me on water infiltration and stuff. Um, so that that is one other aspect to it on the PI side, and and the university allowed us to pick the cover crops that we've thought we're going to work well on our farm. Um, so I was able to pick a cover crop on stuff that we had been working with in the past. Uh, they were probably less traditional type plants that we put in there than what uh, the university identified. 
And so it's going to be interesting to see how we track. And everybody was able to do a different mix. So we'll all be able to have some completely different mixes uh, to compare against what the, the standard, I say standard protocols would be. So oh, that's fascinating. Okay. So I have so many questions. This is what happens. Um, <laughs> so I hear that you're collecting data on soil health parameters. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm assuming there's fertility and carbon and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, sure. we have uh, quite a bit of uh, um, information that we are interested to collect. Uh, like I said, soil moisture is uh, a prime, very important one, soil temperature data. Uh, we currently have uh, um, sensors uh, in the ground uh, continuously uh, monitoring uh, soil moisture and temperature. Uh, at different depths, actually. We have three different depths. One is eight inch, another one is 1.5 uh, foot, and then 2.5 feet. So three uh, different uh, depths. And then um, what we do is we also collect uh, soils for soil inorganic uh, nitrogen, uh, pH, bulk density, uh, organic matter, uh, usually these, uh, these uh, things we collect uh, twice, right before uh, uh, seeding. Mm -hmm. uh, also, right after um, the last termination, um, so in, in fall. So we collect this uh, data in two points, but soil moisture and then temperature are continuously monitoring because the sensor probes are in the ground right now also. And also we have water infiltration. Um, we measure that um, and then cover crop uh, emergence because germination could be a problem with some particular species. Yeah, couple, uh, which particular species do good in terms of biomass um, uh, and then uh, also uh, weeds and insect pests. So since we have, like I said earlier, three different termination dates, we collect this biomass, insect, weed, all this data right before each of those uh, termination dates. So these are the data that we have been collecting from field. In fact, we have more research question on this project, but on field, this is what we are collecting. Okay, so you're collecting the soil health data, mm -hmm. uh, including moisture, that's a big one I, from mm -hmm. what I understand. Mm -hmm. And um, the cover crop biomass with mm -hmm. three different termination dates, the um, pest and beneficial insects yes. that um, occur, including across the different termination dates, mm -hmm. and the weed species mm -hmm. and biomass, um, that's, and as well as some germination of the cover crops. Mm -hmm. um, how are you terminating the cover crops? The cover crops are determined on the uh, termination dates by the university, um, either by date or by uh, the plant um, growth stage, growth stage. Uh, mm -hmm. and then we we're terminating with chemistry roundup. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we did that on two of the uh, terminations, and then one termination I did a uh, a mow. Oh, okay. Is yeah. that your is that your producer's choice? Uh, it, sort of. The third termination one is uh, it could it could vary. So whatever they want to use the termination. Okay. At least this year we decided for next time. This is fun. Okay, so I want to hear a little bit more about your producer's choice mix, Frank. You're going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. 
the legend has it that you're famous for like a 25 way cover crop mix. So the way we came up with the cover crop mixes is in 2017 or 18, we put in a trial of roughly an acre. We identified 26 different either plants, plant types, um, so they would, so some of them were dueled up mustards uh, or mixes. And we put these in on with the plot. I worked with, uh, collaborated with P&W Co-op. So I identified the mixes or plant species and we wanted to track all of the characteristics of each one of those uh, plants or specific mixes and just try to do some data sets on it on growth characteristics and then we tracked that all the way through the following year to the winter wheat crop and wanted to see if we would see a, a difference in yield as well as we did soil testing on every plot. So that was really interesting to see because what we were able to extrapolate from that was some of them had 100% weed control in them, others did not, some of them didn't germinate because uh, they were warm season. Uh, some of them just floundered. Some of them really robbed the next year's wheat crop for uh, yield. So we were able to take all that data and then come up with the ones that I wanted and put that into a mix. So um, I think it was 11 uh, yeah. that was in the mix on my grower's choice. Uh, ranged from sunflowers to uh, a couple different types of mustards, brassicas, so that we'd had radishes and turnips. Uh, some clovers and some spring peas and spring oats. Okay, I bet the pollinators love that. There was oh, yeah. quite a bit of pollinators out there. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, and even from the um, past survey, uh, we have found that way more pollinators in these cover crop mix. Other beneficial insects, some predators like lady beetle signs and several other ones in these cover crop mixes. So I wanted to add right, right now that uh, as Frank said, we didn't really see, you know, visually that many benefits. Uh, but yeah, in terms of uh, maybe soil health, I don't know, but uh, crop yield, they, he didn't see anything, but we found that those cover crops were at least helping uh, beneficial insects. That's so, cool. And it sounds like visually there was some weed suppression historically. Yeah. So in the, in the denser little trials that we had, we had extremely good weed control in some of them. Um, but those would not make sense at those rates to seed on a cover crop basis because of the cost. It was just outweigh the benefit. So we've had to tail that, tailor back some of those seeding rates. So we, we still have weed growth in our plots. Um, and I think that's one of the uh, uh, data sets that you guys are collecting is the weed control or the weed yeah. aspect in mm -hmm. each one of these plots. So we'll just have to wait to hear more of the official data outcomes on these things. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm going to have to pry into more of your secrets, Frank. Um, my limited experience trying to seed cover crops and from what I've heard, um, when you have clover seeds and pea seeds and sunflower seeds. How do you get your seeding rate and run all that through the drill so that you're getting those multi-species mixes established at the right rate and spacing and all of that? I've never experienced problems with it. I mean, they just, if it's mixed correctly, 
and you've got a diverse mix, some of those are going to stay as carriers. So like your oats, any of your larger uh, uh, wide body seeds are going to help suspend those real small seeds. Uh, I would on our large acreage um, seedings, I've, I've got close to a thousand acres of cover crop growing on the rest of our farm, which is a very diverse mix. Right now. It, right now. That's a lot. Ooh, I want to go see that. There <laughs> is, there's enough of a large body carrier, which I'd call like a barley that I put in there, um, that it helps suspend all of those small seeds. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. Now I got to ask about your drill. What kind of drill are you running? So for these plots, we're running a cross lot. It's a, it's a low disturbance no-till drill mm -hmm. and it's just got one seed box on it and metering rolls. Um, calibration is just a function of, of slowing down the metering rolls to put out the rate that you need and it's just a calibration point that you got to find, which is very easy to calibrate if you've done it enough times. Do you have any pro tips and lessons learned in that calibration experience? Well. <laughs> <laughs> For 15 years prior, I was a grass fieldman, oh. so I dealt with a lot of small seeds on small rates. So, yeah, there's a lot of little tricks that I know that uh, on how to calibrate quickly. But um, it's just a matter of putting a little bit of seed in on one section of the seed rolls and turning the wheel out to about a tenth of an acre, and you collect it. And uh, so it's I'm, I know some people. Probably it's a little more difficult because they haven't done it as much, but it's uh, it, it's no different than calibrating it up for wheat. It's just you're using smaller numbers. And it's worth it for the cover crops to just take a minute and make sure you're calibrating before you're seeding it. Well, I mean, the cost of these cover crops are anywhere from fifteen to thirty dollars an acre, and if there's no, especially on large scale acreage. Uh, I guess we're getting a soil health benefit, but that's where we're struggling right now is figuring out what the ROI is on that and how what the true benefit is. Works trying to extrapolate a whole lot of information on what that $30 an acre treatment is getting me um, compared to business as usual. On these smaller plots, when you have, when you dump 25 pounds in the drill and that's all you've got, if you run out, you're up a crick. So, mm -hmm. um, Yes. So we just got to make sure that you're able to meter it out correctly. Thanks for sharing some of those the thoughts on ROI as well. So it sounds like when you're doing the farming operations for the um, PNW cover crops trials, mm -hmm. um, who's who's doing the farming? Is that that's you? You're you're putting in all the the seeding. Yeah, uh, we uh, for low diversity mix and high diversity mix, we provided seeds. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, we offer them, hey, if you need any help uh, while seeding, but they are all, they are doing all. Uh, Frank is uh, seeding and then whatever, you know, they're spraying for termination, all of that. And then we come to collect all the, all the data. Um, and U of I sent out some techs to help seed it. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, they coordinated with us. They waited, it was our, our choice when we wanted to seed the plots. Um, and then when we agreed upon a time to meet, they would come out and help yeah. uh, handle the seed and, and lay the plots out to make sure that we were seeding in the right spot. Great. Yeah. Also, I wanted to add there that um, since this is uh, a, a collaboration uh, um, and then working all uh, together, 
uh, even uh, to set up the plots, um, every farmer, uh, the dimension, the overall area is same, but the dimension is all different, um, mm-hmm. which is all based on the size of, you know, the, the cultivator or spray boom and all of that. Um, so it means, yeah, uh, just to accumulate that so that it won't be uh, too tedious for uh, for them. And I think uh, it's working so far. Well, That's definitely sounds like an on-farm trial pro tip to make sure that you're accounting for the dimensions of the equipment mm-hmm. if you're working directly with the farmer to run their equipment through these plots make sure that they're right sized for the farm and, and just to add to that that was part of the pi component mm-hmm. that uh when they were setting up those parameters they asked each one of us specifically what what our width of our equipment was and how mm-hmm. to so that they could set each individual plot up separately uh to match the farmer's needs mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. It sounds like, you know, there's there's just a lot of really great, it's a great brain trust, this the PNW Power Crops project between um, our grower innovators and the research team. Um, it sounds like there's some great synergy in working together. Um, we talked a little bit about um, how long you expect these projects to run. It sounds like the Western Sierra Grant cycle three of three years is what's going to really drive that. Um, what do you see happening at the end of three years? You're reporting out your data. You have your decision aid system that hopefully can be then expanded, you know, and and used by other people Mm -hmm. across the, especially the annual cropping region, but hopefully into some of the transitional fallow regions as well. Mm -hmm. Our goal is, even though this particular project uh, funds for three years, uh, uh, first of all, this decision support tool, we want to uh, continue with this, right? Uh, we have the website already built, uh, which is uh, pnwcovercrops.org. Um, we also called um, for the decision support tool. We also uh, give have given the name is which is uh, PANDAS, uh, which means uh, Pacific Northwest uh, Cover Crop Decision uh, Aid System. Um, and then um, um, once this project is over, we would still like to continue finding other resources and do this type of work and at the same time continue this uh, decision support tool. So that's our goal. We didn't want to stop right there. No. I might have to agree. So I'm excited about it because we all are we're trying the uh, traditional cover cropping and then we've all got our grower choice and all that data is getting collected. So as a PI, we get to see what everybody else is doing and we get to talk about uh, the successes and the uh, pitfalls to each one. But after this, we'll be able to extrapolate a lot of information of what worked uh, for each different system and hopefully be able to tailor or hone in a little bit better on a successful cover crop on the Palouse. As being one of the PIs for the project, you get that up close and personal, most relevant on-site data. And, you know, again, really appreciating your contribution because this is not just something you're trying to tailor for your farm, but it is really contributing on, you know, with this research collaboration and you run the statistics of like, okay, well, how likely is this to work on other farms as well? And, um, but so what, what data Frank in this project is most important to you? We've talked a little bit about that, but as you brought up the ROI, like what is it that is going to evolve this forward for you as part of your farm, your working farm business? Uh, there's a whole lot of things on that. Um, 
Yeah. And we're already tracking it. So um, it's going to be interesting to see if, if through the scientific protocols, they can extrapolate the same information that we're seeing on the anecdotal side of the large acreage cover crops that we're doing. So pH is a big issue on the pollution. So I've got a lot of hope in cover cropping. And what we're seeing anecdotally on our farm is we've seen our pHs reverse. We're 90% of our fields are between six and seven pH now with no liming. But there's a lot of management strategies that we've had to put in place to do that. Uh, but a large large amount of that's cover cropping. So um, it's very early in that data collection that I've been doing, uh, but in comparison to some of the uh, farms around us, uh, we're probably a full percentage above them on where the pHs are at. Well, and that's logarithmic. So if you're a full pH unit, like that's a big deal. It's, it is. Mm-hmm. So, that, so to me, to have this running on our farm um, to collect the data and the, and the protocols that they've put in place will hopefully help solidify what we've been working on and be able to help move that forward. Ooh, that's exciting. Okay, so with your cover crop, do you ever put down any fertility with it? I know the seed investment is already pretty high. But- we didn't put any down on these trials and I have, I have played with some fertility on cover cropping, which is impressive to see what the plant does. But again, we're we're trying to keep that cost component down. And a lot of these synthetic components have a salt content, which contributes to our pH problems. So um, that growing plant and the microbiome that's down below the soil surface, that is what's converting these uh, changes in our soil. So we're staying away from it deliberately. Okay. Um, thanks for that. Yeah. I mean, pH doesn't, you know, um, pH and acidity contributions aren't just about fixing it with lime, though the carbonate is definitely the, the neutralizing component of the carbonate in there. The, the carbonate is one side of it, but also just reducing the contributions to acidity as part of your management goals and just really acknowledging that. Okay. Sabode, how does this on-farm experiment complement the rest of your research portfolio? Because I'm sure this is not the only research project you're working on. Um, you know, if you have things going on on a research, like a university research farm or in the greenhouse or in the lab, like, you know, what else do you have going on? And how is this, does this work? And how these other experiments are also contributing to answering broader innovation questions in the region. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, my my background is uh, also farming, uh, coming from a farming background and especially diversified farming background. Um, I'm really, really interested on um, low input. Uh, we talk about talked about ROI, so low input, um, and then diversified system, and see how that can uh, impact. And I have witnessed a um, lot of benefits um, of this diversification. So most of my work, uh, other works, are also uh, around that area: sustainable farming, sustainable. Ecologically based pest management. Uh, I work on be, uh, helping pollinators, beneficial insects, but also managing insect pests um, more um, in a sustainable way or ecologically based instead of 
just like putting chemistries and then eventually we see so many other problems. So this is um, uh, a very good uh, complementary project for me um, because this is all about um, uh, diversification, carbon system diversification, and then looking at the impact of, of this. And my previous background, my, my PhD was also about this. It was diversified but organically managed versus uh, conventional, but also tillage versus no tillage and all of those comparisons. Those great folks over there at Montana State. Yes. So I'm just continuing that, uh, that, that work, uh, and then I'm really uh, really excited with these uh, these these projects working with uh, with with, uh, with growers yeah one thing that impressed me with Sabode, you need to talk a little bit more about your uh, farming background from where you grew up because it's not it's not our typical uh, farming system but there's a lot of similarities i think he said your family farm was was it 20 acres i mean it was bigger than that uh, for sure um but uh, we used to have uh, in um, most of the, uh, the chunk of our farm, uh, three crops a year, not just one crop, but three crops, which means you are busy all the time, right? Throughout the season, but you rotate, for example, um, we had wheat, uh, corn, uh, peas, uh, many crops here, uh, similar crops, uh, certainly rice also. But uh, you, when you diversify, when you rotate crop uh, every every time, and then utilize uh, some of the unwanted weeds um, uh, as a you know like the some resources. I never thought that weeds can be a problem until I I came here and then see weeds is a problem. While farming, I never thought that weed was a problem to me because we used to graze before um, plantation and then after harvesting, post-harvest, and then also use those weeds to feed cattle, right? Um, so, but at the same time, you don't really have much of the problem because of the crop rotation and then many crop would um, easily outcompete those, uh, those weeds. So using that uh, knowledge from my own farming, now I want to test because when I was farming, I didn't have any scientific background, scientific tool to measure, but now I can, utilizing that knowledge and then in, uh, incorporating with the other, uh, you know, like uh, the system here. Uh, and that's what uh, we are really doing right now in the larger scale here, but rotation, diversification, uh, and, and all of that. I'm, I'm all about the big fan of Penny save is penny on. Input. <laughs> he told me that story, I guess it would have been 2019 when we met. We just were visiting in the field and, uh -huh. and uh, I didn't realize he had a farming background. I mean, here's a PhD student that's out and, and uh, we just started talking about the similarities in their farming practices where he's from. And, and uh, one thing that made me go home and think was the weeds. It's like, well, we were looking at weeds all wrong sometimes. Yes, we got to manage them so that they don't go to seed, but those weeds are those weeds are actually growing for a reason. They're trying to fix the soil. They're trying to fix. They're trying to do something. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the the soil or it's something that we created with chemistries that we put down. So look at those weeds as a component of cover. 
And so once you got your head around that, uh, leaving those weed seeds out there to germinate, they're part of that our large acreage right now cover cropping. What we're seeing with adding these cover crops into our farming practices is we're triggering triggering these weeds to grow at a non-traditional time because we've messed with their rotation. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, weed bank being germinated that typically wouldn't germinate at the, the time that we're seeing it. So that gives us an opportunity to get those to grow, to terminate so that they're not in crop. Um, again, then that will reduce overall our, our footprint of uh, chemistries. Well, yeah, it sounds like, and for folks that are doing grazing or something like that, mm-hmm. then that becomes more of a resource. When you talk about um, ecological pest management, whether that's weeds or insects or um, whatever, you know, I mean, that's thinking about the agricultural system as an ecosystem and, and weeds, they're part of succession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we build that into a profitable production system? Um, and, you know, the idea of using them as a resource is mm-hmm. pretty exciting. That penny yeah. saved, penny earned mm-hmm. um, is, yeah, that's entirely mm-hmm. part of farming, especially, you know, as we translate some of these Midwestern technologies or the Midwestern innovations into this agro ecosystem where the margins are narrower and our ecosystem is completely different. And we kind of touched on this, but if you'd like to expand on um, how these PNW cover crop trials are part of your on-farm trial experiment, experimental portfolio, if you will, um, and if you've gained anything immediately actionable from the experiment so far. What I'm most interested in is getting that data collection of the soil, the soil benefit overall, and the, the benefits of the the beneficial insects. Um, so to be able to have that, I, none of that data is have uh, been finalized or 100% collected yet, but that is going to be huge for us. Um, and again, to be able to use that data set uh, along with all of the other uh, data sets that are being collected through the other eight farms, um, just to be able to extrapolate that information and put it uh, back on into use on what we're already doing, because I'm sure we're going to have to tweak what we're, what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. but uh, you won't know until we collect all of that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really where I'm at on it. Yeah, and I think I missed one thing I should add there uh, in terms of, of our uh, three cover crop treatments. I mentioned that we have this producer's choice um, that producers uh, are picking their own. But even this low diversity and high diversity, we didn't make those things up. Those are also all based on Frank and other people. I have a data from 26 different cover crops from 2019 and 2020 that I visited all the way to Edwall, Washington and all the region, bigger, wider region than this. Uh, and then more people down from Asotin, uh, not just uh, our collaborators right now. And then I also had crop mix that they were using. And all of those farms that I visited and then crop mix 
we used all of those mix to develop to build these low and high diversity these are based on already not just one farmer maybe not just from franks but other farmers and based on that we built we just didn't bring those from like the western cover crop systems no from here right here and that's why it's so that I mean, I feel like that's such a great testament to the value of incorporating producer knowledge and existing producer innovation and experience in into the research space and and how we move together in, you know, innovating in our in our agro ecosystem here mm-hmm. in East, the in, inland Pacific Northwest. So um, just a big props to our early innovators. Yeah. Um, and now you can see, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, it, <laughs> and again, I'm just, I'm still amazed that, you know, you had all the producers and, and PhD folks in the room and I just, yeah, trying to get people to agree on what to do, but it sounds like you came in with a really good data set. So starting with a good, um, baseline is a good way to launch that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we joked about it, but I'm, yeah, we're joking about it, but it, the, the early innovators, I mean, the, they're all a good group of of uh, farmers that understand that there needs to be some heavy protocols, and I think that's probably the the disconnect between farmers and the PhD component is they're trying to put the true protocols in there, and for farmers, it's like we need to just get this information now and move on. So, but everybody worked very well together. Well, and and I think that's so important too because I I think you know just a how the operations are conducted on the working farm. And, you know, that is really invaluable knowledge that, you know, producers are the only ones could bring because you're the ones who know your farms the best too, you know, and, and how those operations look, especially because they're so diverse across different farms. And that experience is, uh, is really strong to me. Their experience is way more than our short-term trial. Their long-term experience is way more powerful. I visited somewhere in Aswatin County in 2019, one uh, cover crop farm. When I went there, I was looking around cover crop. I didn't see any. A huge hundreds of acres of large field. There was nothing. I called uh, Grover and then Grover said, oh, that was the field uh, that I pointed to you. The reason was his seeded cover crop and his fallow field didn't germinate. So it's not just a success, but also in um, lower precipitation zone, drier zone, many seed, many crop may not germinate. That another experience labeled right there. And other grower from, you know, like uh, Edward region, he tried 30 different crops in cover crop mixes. And when I went there and then literally checked every crop that was immersed, I was able to find up to 19 or 20. The rest of them didn't germinate. The 10 or 11 didn't germinate, right? So the germination issue, emergence issue is also, and we are just trying, right? And based on their experience, our, our experience, we have to modify our mixes that what works best in our condition. Well, and I imagine that varies from year to year and, and whether that's a benefit or a drawback. I mean, you don't want to be spending money on seed in the ground that doesn't grow. Um, one of our previous podcasts, they talked about when you use these very diverse species mixes, especially across a very variable landscape, you get different 
um, plants growing across the landscape and maybe there's different emergence year to year as well. Have you seen that, Frank? We have. That's, I mean, this year was, uh, we've had very good success in planting uh, our, our fall planted cover um, just because we had early rains and uh, had great moisture in our soils. And then uh, last year, uh, we still had covers grow, but uh, limited um, limited germination. A lot of them didn't germinate till early spring. They had uh, uh, adequate moisture and warm growing conditions. So yeah, it's, I mean, that's that's kind of the toss up, but we, we're used to it. Um, that's another reason that we try to keep our cover crop seed costs low because of that success component. I wanted to just throw out a quick question though about, you had mentioned RMA in your very first um, ad adventures with the, the radish. Um, I wanted to check in as well, like what your experience has been since then working with crop insurance and cover cropping. And also um, I know that there's some termination dates and timing with, with that. It, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but I also want to acknowledge that that is part of the cover cropping potential barriers in our region because it likely looks different in practice than it does in other parts of the country. Well, I can comment on uh, on our annual cropping system. It kind of depends on where you grow it, uh, what the next crop's going to be. So I don't. I'm not running up against any RMA issues. Uh, because all of our ground is continuous cropping. And so it's just a matter of how you classify it when you certify mm -hmm. with the, the FSA. Uh, the, the problem is with some of these drier region areas, mm -hmm. uh, and Sabod can comment on that, but those, sure. those are the ones that RMA, and RMA is looking at it, but how there are the termination dates. And uh, it's if there's going to be a lag in yield, Et cetera, et cetera. So that's that is one of the component, one of the constraints that we've actually were talking about in one of these meetings. Yes, you, yeah. Well, even last week, exactly a week ago, we had this annual meeting with other uh, researchers in there. Uh, termination was one of the issues that we wanted to revisit or rethink uh, because uh, that's the RMA uh, date for um, annual cropping, um, uh, annual transition, transition cropping uh, system area people. Uh, so that's what we used last time. Uh, last time for first termination date was June first. But we had like 50% bloom of uh, legumes um, in annual cropping. That's the first termination uh, date. And then we kept on adding, uh, you know, like uh, other other dates, termination dates. But we, we thought we should revisit a little bit uh, based on, you know, our experience, first year experience. So we need to do that uh, somehow. Yeah, and forming that termination date maybe at a more re region-specific yeah. um, level with uh, with data might be one of the outcomes of this project. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. I gotta ask um, Frank, what's the most annoying thing about working with a researcher? I've I've been fortunate that uh, I came from a career that I worked with researchers a lot, so I. I really don't have any problems with it. Uh, um, sometimes it doesn't move as quick as I'd like to see it move, but I mean, that's agriculture. You, and, come on, you can be frank. You are frank. <laughs> <laughs> you can 
too, Frank. Nice. I, I'm pretty easygoing. I we're we have an easygoing farm, and and I understand that there's just some of those things we have to work through. So the frustration level is more that it's just the time. But that's they, nothing that they can control. Yeah, research isn't known to move super quickly because you want to get all the replications and make sure the data is good before you make mm -hmm. your assertions. But I definitely can understand the time. So, I mean, like this program is three years. For me, I would probably say it's one and done. And we're going to go on to some, take all the data sets that we've learned and move on to the next level. And they just need to do the scientific protocols. Now, so, you know how variable year to year no, no, weather changes are. All right. What's the most annoying part about working with a farmer? Yeah, for me, I'm being honest here, uh, being Frank here. Frank um, with Frank. <laughs> Frank. Yeah, being Frank <laughs> with Frank here. If we realize the situations, conditions, circumstances of farmers that we are collaborating with, I think we should be fine. We don't have to, to be annoyed. I'm... Uh, Honestly, I am not annoyed at all so far. I really enjoy whenever I see these people, I talk to them. I always enjoy and they're all good. I, to me, though, I feel like probably sometimes producers could be annoyed from outside. Maybe, you know, like too much texting, calling, emailing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah, we need to come to your, uh, to, to your farm and oh, we need to do this. Uh, we need to collect this data. That probably could be annoying for for them, but for us, we we know their conditions. So if we you know like work around on that situation, I think we we are all good. I can definitely relate on the uh, annoying farmers by, by various contacting methods in order no, to I mean, come they, visit the I farm. Mean, what, one of the reasons why their uh, innovators, early adapters are there, probably they, they want to try something new, want to work with researchers. That's why we are working together. That may be the reason why we don't have that problem of annoying. Again, we just really appreciate our, our innovative collaborators across the region. Um, okay, what's the most fun thing about working with a researcher, Frank? I have a different insight on what we're doing. Sounds like you've enjoyed the conversations you've had too, you know, when you were talking about Sabode sharing his background mm -hmm. and different perspectives. Yeah. And no, you get to meet new people and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, that's, that's fun to build, use their experiences and, and, uh, and learn from them. Yeah. I, uh, I think, uh, um, to me, um, the fun part is, well, we get uh, their, their land to work on, right? Go there and also for, uh, for us learning uh, for their experience, different processes, they have their own uh, experiences. So learning from their experience and how can we incorporate their, their issues, their problems in our, into our research questions? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a, that's always a plus for us, uh, learning from learning from them. And again, coming from farming background, I, um, I, I always enjoy and hopefully for them, it's like a fresh off of their farm, some of the data that, uh, uh, they will get. And then also they are a part of this uh, new uh, research, uh, this uh, the new innovation that these results can be applied in broader region, right? So other people, other peers can learn from them 
so they they are a part of this this so which is also I think good for both of us. I really appreciate you both being on this podcast to share the project and give um, all of the farmer colleagues who are interested in cover crops across the region a sneak peek and, you know, as well as some already shared experience in, in this space. So thank you both for doing this work and exploring cropping systems innovation for the region and sharing it with the listeners. Uh, we look forward to hearing more as the work progresses. Is there any final thoughts either of you have? No, thank you so much uh, for um, this, you know, developing this podcast, uh, especially pairing up with uh, with producer that I have been working for five years or so. Uh, and yeah, when we have more data from our trials, we'll be happy to share again, um, come back and share more. I look forward to it. Yeah, and I, th- I would just like to add that... Uh Communicating what we're doing out to the public and other farmers is important because to get other farmers that are not early adopters to innovate, that's huge. That uh, We've got podcasts that we can do that now um, and to be able to collect this data through the universities. It's, it's great that uh, we're moving that forward instead of just... Uh, we always seem to keep farmers are pretty quiet about what they do. One's because they don't want to be judged. And two, it's kind of secretive what they're doing on their farm in comparison to the guy across the fence. So uh, we got to get past that little taboo too. Yeah. And then just to add on that, um, even though this is on farm trial podcast, this, this particular research also has some social components that uh, we are uh, meeting with our, our PIs, but also other growers in, you know, like a focus group discussion as well as individual, individual discussion. And then working on, you know, trying to identify the barriers, the challenges, um, what motivated them um, uh, if they are early adapters and if they have not tried yet, why, why, why not? All of that uh, on this this Western Share uh, funded project. Yeah, we didn't talk about that at all, but that's, we did that's not. also a very neat component because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of similarities amongst all the PIs that... Uh, were shared. Well, I always like good inspiration for um, subsequent podcasts, and and really, I think you spoke to um, you know the the culture of keeping things a little bit more on the farm. Um, but I've also heard that some producers can feel more alone in their innovation, and like in the very rural areas when all the neighbors are doing business as usual to get that inspiration to try something a little different. And it's exciting to be able to use tools in the digital space like this podcast mm-hmm. to maybe encourage some folks and, and to, to hear about, you know, calibrating the cover crop seed rollers and share the pro tips from the experienced mm-hmm. folks. Yeah. Yeah. And the final thoughts as a researcher, I would like to tell everybody from here that uh, cover cropping is one of the many tools in the IPM toolbox since I'm uh, insect-based management IPM person. Mm-hmm. Um, if they want to try different tools, uh, uh, what we call many little hammer concept for weed management or for uh, insect-based management, if they want to try many little hammers um, instead of one single big hammer and then 
if something happens with that big hammer, then we see uh, so many problems. So cover crop, cover cropping, crop rotation, and all of that would be many little hammers here. Well, and having more of a diverse tool set too, I think contributes to resilience. Well, you know, and there's changing conditions all around. <laughs> well, thank you both again for the work you're doing. And thank you so much for having us out to your farm, Frank, and really for sharing all of your knowledge and experience. And you as well, Dr. Adhikari. Mm -hmm. um, and if you see Savota at a conference, go tell him about all the many, many little hammers you're trying. Sure. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, Thanks thank so you. much. Yeah, thank you. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.